Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Zachary Kaufman, Associate Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of Houston Law Center. We will discuss his article, Digital Age Samaritans, which is published in the Boston College Law Review. So welcome back to the show, Zach. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. I'm thrilled to be back. Yeah, uh, this is great to uh, be talking again about this subject that we've discussed previously. Uh, But for listeners who don't have the background in the area, who haven't had a chance to listen to our previous interview or uh, read your previous paper, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what bad Samaritan laws are, how long they've existed, and how they tend to work. Certainly, Brian. Uh, Thank you. So bad Samaritan laws are statutes that impose a legal duty to assist others in peril through intervening directly, which is also known as the duty to rescue, um, or notifying authorities, also known as the duty to report. And so these laws vary by subject matter and victims to whom they apply and individuals uh, who must comply. And um, at least in the United States, they're, they're highly controversial. My first article in this series, Protectors of Predators or Prey, which was published in the Southern California Law Review, um, addressed debates about the law's origins, their operations, their outcomes, and uh, objections to them. Um, and I also established in that article that the that Bad Samaritan laws are far more prevalent and longstanding in the United States than scholars had previously recognized. I found that uh, Bad Samaritan laws exist in 29 U.S. states plus Puerto Rico, um, and they also exist in uh, various foreign countries and also in international law. Um, and so they're, they're certainly much more widespread and varied than um, I certainly realized um, before coming to the subject and, um, and, and more so than uh, you know, other scholars had, have acknowledged. So to the extent that there are a significant number of bad Samaritan laws out there, do they tend to be pretty similar and operate in similar ways? Or are there salient differences among the different laws that might affect their operation? There are some pretty salient differences. Um, let me just give you a few. So whether the, the law imposes a duty to rescue or report, and sometimes bad Samaritan laws that impose a duty to rescue or intervene will uh, allow reporting to discharge the duty. In, in other words, reporting qualifies as the intervention. Bad Samaritan laws also uh, vary by what prompted their enactment. Often uh, they have been enacted because of um, public outrage to um, a really shocking uh, instance of bystanderism. And um, uh, often that has occurred in the case of sexual crimes. Um, and there are some key case studies that I've discussed in my scholarship that have prompted um, some of those uh, laws. They also vary, these bad Samaritan laws, um, you know, uh, for the, the type of crimes or even non-criminal crises that they cover. Um, some bad Samaritan laws um, don't apply only to crimes. It might be a situation in which a person 
um, is subject to any risk to their, um, their, their lives. So it might be a situation like drowning, uh, for example. Um, bad Samaritan laws also vary in terms of whether they're limited to situations in which the victim is under a particular age. Um, in, in my scholarship, I track uh, the duty to report laws in both California and Nevada, both of which were in response to the same case study, and that involved a child who was uh, fatally uh, sexually assaulted. And the, the laws in those two states only apply to children. There are other um, examples of ways that bad Samaritan laws vary. Um, um, the exemptions, for example, that they feature, which punishments for non-compliance are included, um, and the time frame, if any, is even stated for discharging the duty. So some require discharging a duty immediately. Others, for example, within 24 hours. Um, others are more vague and may say something like, as soon as reasonably practicable. Um, so they really do vary uh, widely, um, the, the bad Samaritan laws that exist in the United States and abroad. So to the extent these laws do exist, how frequently and how consistently are they actually invoked by, by states? And to the extent that states don't have these bad Samaritan laws, do you have any sense of, of why not? So um, bad Samaritan laws are seldom enforced. Um, and, and let me let me sort of clarify what I mean by that. They're they're seldom charged against violators, um, and so there there are few, uh, relatively few cases in which we see um, bad Samaritan laws, uh, you know, violations charged. Um, less clear is a is another way of the laws being used, um, and that is in which a prosecuting authority may offer immunity in exchange for testimony. And that would be another reason to have these laws on the books. And anecdotally, I have come across uh, situations in which prosecuting authorities have offered immunity and have obtained testimony that has been vital um, to, uh, um, to convicting um, a perpetrator of, let's say, a, a sexual crime. Um, but because um, the, the, the frequency of those sorts of deals, um, isn't as widely available. It's unclear to me, um, how frequently laws are used in that way. So they're definitely, so violations are definitely seldom charged and it is unclear how often laws are used in the secondary way. So as you note in the article, a lot of the bad Samaritan laws on the books are of, you know, relatively uh, long vintage, as it were, uh, and don't necessarily respond to kind of present day technology and and behavior. What kind of impact, if any, do you think technological change and changes in the way that people interact with each other socially might meaningfully affect the sort of conceptualization and application of bad Samaritan laws? One of the reasons why um, I'm, I'm so curious about, about enforcement is because I've also learned that, that public awareness and even police and prosecutors' awareness of the very existence of these laws um, is, is low. So very few people um, you know, who could be uh, subject to the laws or who could enforce the laws even know about these laws. 
So one of the one of the things I've done in my scholarship is to suggest that we raise public awareness about the laws, because as is, I think it's sort of unfair to know how effective they are if many people don't even realize that they exist. Um, so that that's part of the prescriptions that I always offer is if we're going to have these laws, um, which, of course, is controversial. But if we are, um, I very much believe that we should raise awareness of them just because they're so seldom uh, known. Um, to answer your question that you just posed about how technology, um, you know, the interplay between technology and, and the current design of these laws Unfortunately, a lot of the laws were, because they were um, enacted before the digital age, um, they really didn't conceive of the possibility that you could have remote witnesses to crimes or other non-criminal crises that could threaten someone's life and therefore might be um, covered by a bad Samaritan law. And so they, the, the laws often talk about um, witnesses being at the scene of the crime um, which, um, you know, we, we typically think of as being physically present, um, at the, at the scene, um, or other laws, um, you know, mention individuals who observe the crime. And often that is, is interpreted to mean, um, physically observe, uh, in person. Um, but, you know, what, what I'm trying to argue through the Digital Age Samaritans article, um, it was, you know, in the modern era, of course, there are other ways, um, you know, virtually remotely that people can become aware of, even in real time, um, uh, crimes as they are uh, occurring. And so there's a gap that I'm trying to point out um, between the current design of many bad Samaritan laws as being focused on physically present witnesses and the fact that now in the modern era, many virtually, as I would call them, virtually present uh, witnesses um, are similarly aware of, of crimes. And, and furthermore, there are reasons to think that virtually present witnesses might be even better situated um, to discharge a duty to report. Um, and that's because if witnesses are physically present, perpetrators may be aware of them or more likely to be aware of them than if they're virtually present. And the risk, the physical risk to physically present witnesses if they were to report is higher than for virtually present witnesses. So there are reasons to think that um, it might be safer for virtually present uh, witnesses to, to intervene in some way, even if just by reporting. So in your paper, you establish a framework for thinking about different kinds of witnesses or different kinds of people who are present and might or might not be subject to bad Samaritan laws and how we might distinguish among them. I wonder if you could just really briefly talk about what you think the relevant distinctions are, why you think they matter, and how we can use them productively in thinking more systematically about the application of these laws. Thank you, Brian. Um, Definitely one of the contributions I'm hoping to make through all of my scholarship on bystanders and upstanders um, is to create nomenclatures, to create uh, typologies that get at the nuances among um, actors in, in the space. There are basically three uh, categories of, um, of third-party actors that I would 
um, that I would note. One is bystanders, a second is upstanders, and a third is enablers. And bystanders um, are people who are um, aware of a situation and, and remain passive. Um, upstanders are people who um, actively uh, partake in trying to help in some way. And then enablers facilitate uh, the crime um, as, you know, maybe as, as it is occurring um, or exacerbated uh, in some way. So that's generally speaking, third parties in um, amid crimes or non-criminal crises. In the particular uh, context of the modern era of, of the digital age, I've come up with two general categories of um, either bystander, upstanders, or enablers. The first is transmitters, and the second is receivers. So transmitters are witnesses who are physically present at the scene of a crime and share evidence of the offense electronically, such as through email, social media, mobile devices, uh, or even landline phones. And so that evidence may be sounds like spoken words, uh, written communication like text messages or emailing or commenting on social media, uh, photographs or videos, whether the uh, whether recordings or live streams. Now, in contrast, receivers are remote witnesses uh, who see, hear, or otherwise observe the live or recorded material from transmitters. Um, and so, they transmitters are physically present, and in contrast, receivers are are virtually present. And then I have sub subtypes of transmitters and receivers, um, but the general categories are are those two transmitters and receivers. So in your paper, you spend a considerable amount of time focused on one particular crime and how it implicates the questions that you're asking here. I, I wonder if you could give listeners a little bit of background on that particular crime uh, and what you did to gather relevant information to thinking about how it might help illustrate the problems around Bad Samaritan laws that you're investigating. So uh, generally speaking, I, I, I was searching for a case study that would help me tease out all of these nuances. And so I wanted to find um, a case study, preferably one that had been uh, under-researched or perhaps even not analyzed at all in legal scholarship yet, um, that, that enabled me to, to think about the variety of transmitters and receivers, bystanders, upstanders, and enablers. Um, and also, I, I, ideally, I could find um, a case study that occurred in a jurisdiction in which it was at least theoretically uh, possible to charge a violation of a bad Samaritan law. And so um, I, I eventually arrived at this harrowing, just awful um, case study, uh, which I refer to as the Gates-Lonina case. And so essentially what happened was that in 2016 in Columbus, Ohio, a woman named Marina Lonina live-streamed live the rape of her supposed best friend. The rapist's uh, name is Raymond Gates. Um, and uh, over more than 700 people watched live. And this turns out to be the first known live stream, in the United States at least, uh, of a rape. And the case had not been analyzed in, um, in legal scholarship before. Actually, it hadn't been analyzed, so far as I understand, anywhere. 
Um, and that was really surprising to me, given that it did receive some uh, widespread attention um, at the time, both in the United States as well as overseas, because it was so uh, shocking. And because of the enormous number of people who were watching and declined to do anything or or actually exacerbated the, uh, the crime in some way. So far as I could detect, there was only one person um, who was an upstander who, who tried to be helpful. And so to research the case, what I did is I contacted the Columbus Police Department, requested through a public records request um, the police file. Uh, fortunately, they, they did give it to me. They gave me a, a somewhat redacted version, but not in any way that, um, that affected my research. Um, and then what I did is I figured out um, through a lot of just intensive research who some of the key players were, um, key actors in the case, including the only upstander um, in, in the case who is, is an, it was, whose identity was redacted in the police file. But, um, but I figured out um, through various ways who that person uh, is. And so through, um, after applying for um, IRB approval, uh, which was granted, I then conducted interviews with um, the only upstander. I actually con- conducted multiple interviews with that person. And then I also conducted interviews with the lead detective, uh, the lead prosecutor, the specific prosecutor in the uh, Lonina um, case, and then the um, the defense counsel to Marina Lonina. So there were five people, each of whom I interviewed either once or multiple times. Um, and then that 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 served as the the sort of primary source um, data I used for uh, for the article. So maybe you could lay out then some of the different people who were involved, how they were involved, and how bad Samaritan laws could or maybe even should have been used in that particular case? So the the first person to start with um, is Marina Lonina herself. She qualifies, um, in my view, as what I would call a a transmitter. Um, And then I mentioned earlier in our conversation that I subdivide uh, transmitters into, into different types. So I would call her a um, an enabler uh, transmitter because she contributed harmfully um, to the to the situation. She was, um, you know, broadcasting in real time the rape of a of a minor, um, and uh, I would refer to her as a contemporaneous transmitter. Um, I I divide transmitters into either contemporaneous or delayed transmitter, and she's a contemporaneous tran- transmitter because she shared evidence of the crime as it was occurring. And so basically, um, to, to analyze Marina Lonina, we need to understand why she was, um, broadcasting. Um, and if her, uh, her conduct, um, you know, violated any laws, she was, uh, eventually charged with, uh, multiple felonies and, um, and served time, uh, for them. She served, uh, nine months. Um, she was not interestingly, uh, uh, charged with violating Ohio's um, Bad Samaritan law. Actually, Ohio has two Bad Samaritan laws, but one of which she could have been um, uh, prosecuted for. Um, and the reason that, and, and let me first of all just say what that that law is. Ohio's um, general Bad Samaritan law is that it's a felt that 
anyone knowing that a felony has been or is being committed, um, it's a crime for that person to knowingly fail to report such information to law enforcement authorities. But, but as I learned through researching the case and talking with um, the attorneys who were, were involved on either side, um, because uh, Ohio's general bad Samaritan law is a misdemeanor, a violation of it is a misdemeanor offense, and she was charged with so many felonies, um, which the prosecutors were uh, reasonably confident um, she was going to be convicted of or, or plead guilty to, they just simply didn't bother, um, you know, charging a misdemeanor as well. And then also there was a logistical complexity in that particular jurisdiction. Um, uh, felonies are charged at the at the county level and um, and misdemeanors at the city level. And so it actually would have um, prompted two different cases. Uh, and as we all know that, you know, in, in some situations, witnesses might not be consistent in all of their testimony. And so it could have led to um, some some problems uh, given given two cases on the same subject and involving potentially the same witnesses. Um, so that's that's Marina Lonina. Happy to talk about her um, some more. Then there's a bunch of other people. I mean, as I mentioned, there are more than 700 people who who watched uh, live, um, and almost all of whom did did nothing. And worse, some of them prodded. Marina Lonina, either to, you know, change the view so that they could see better or even to pull off the cover, um, the bed cover, so that they could see the rape as it was happening uh, clearer. And so I, I think it's helpful um, in understanding both moral and potentially legal culpability to subdivide those people into uh, different groups, those who were those receivers who were, um, you know, prodding. Um, Lonina to engage more in the crime. Um, those would be enablers, um, and and you know they're they're clearly they're clearly not trying to help. They're not upstanders, and they're not even bystanders because they're not doing nothing. They're actually engaging uh, in some way with with the transmitter. In this case, Marina Lonina. Um, some of the the, um, the 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 observers, to their credit, actually were trying to prod. Lonina to um, get help. And so I would say that those individuals are upstander uh, receivers. And then there are particular people that, um, that I hone in on. So there's the anonymous, um, the only, you know, real upstander who, who actually did something about this, um, who I call the reporter, and she eventually alerts uh, law enforcement. She also alerts uh, the victim's mother. Um, and, and she found her through through Facebook. Um, and it's just shocking, you know, that that there's only one person who who really tries to to help in some in some way. One one thing that my scholarship, uh, my research did, and, and I present in in the article um, is that I believe there was someone who knew what was going on as it was occurring, who the police weren't aware of, and that is Marina Lonina's father. So through my research, um, I uh, learned that there was a phone call during the uh, the rape um, between Lonina and her father, whose name is Alexei Lonin, in which uh, uh, Lonin um, basically, you know, indicates that he uh, has heard what's happened, what what is happening, 
and he tells her to, you know, get out of the situation. The um, police um, did not have a the longer version of the recorded live stream, um, and so which included the phone call with between um, Lonina and her father, and so they weren't aware of this. Um, but I happened upon uh, this information, and so I I detail it uh, in the article. Um, the point that I make about Alexi Lonin is that he actually might have been the only person um, who could have been uh, charged with violating Ohio's general bad Samaritan law. Um, and perhaps he should have been um, because it, it, it appears that he was probably aware of what was happening as it was happening and he did nothing. Um, and as a kicker, um, he was reportedly dating the victim's mother uh, at the time and, and knew and knew the victim, um, not only as his daughter's best friend, but also as the daughter of his girlfriend. Um, and so it's, it, it really is shocking that that uh, he reportedly uh, did nothing. Um, so, you know, in general, I've, I've kind of tried to categorize the different groups of people and what they did. Um, naming certain people when I've been able to identify who they are or anonymizing others um, when, it, when, it, when it isn't appropriate and they've requested that. Thinking specifically about the people who are on the receiving end of this communication, based on kind of your thinking about how bad Samaritan laws can and should be structured and and function, which, if any, of those people do you think should be chargeable under a revised uh, or kind of a model Bad Samaritan law? And how would you distinguish between, you know, who should be charged and who shouldn't be charged? The, the article presents um, what, I, what I call sort of a, a liability hierarchy. Um, and I, I, I have an image in, in the article that, that presents this graphically. Um, I, I would suggest or I would propose that um, enabler receivers be, the, um, be the, the, the type of receivers um, on whom uh, law enforcement should focus. I, I'm not so unrealistic as to think that prosecutors and police have the resources um, or even interest um, to deal with, or time uh, to deal with more than 700 um, receivers in, in a single case. And that would be unrealistic and even undesirable. I, I'm not proposing that. What I am proposing is um, using the, the, uh, the typology that I've proposed to create uh, different categories among them and then to establish a hierarchy of those who should be prioritized for uh, investigation. And at the, high, at, the, at the top of that priority list, I would think should be the enabler receivers. And those would be individuals who were actively engaging with Marina Lonina, the transmitter, as the rape is occurring to prod her to um, you know, do things like remove the bed cover. They're, they're contributing to the crime they're acknowledging through their statements and, and other conduct that they understand that, you know, what is happening. Um, and um, 
and and they're revealing themselves to you know to to not um, be be caring and not to to try to be helpful. They're not even being being passive. So so all that I'm proposing is that um, after recognizing that enablers are worse than bystanders who are worse than upstanders. Um, and I would never suggest that upstanders be, um, you know, uh, criminally liable for anything. Um, that enablers be the group that we that we focus on. So obviously, a big part of what you're doing here is trying to reconceptualize bad Samaritan laws, not just in general, but specifically for the digital age. But of course, on the internet, it's hard to know what's real, right? And and you and you. You, you point out in the paper that sometimes we can use context or social context to kind of inform whether or not reasonable people should or could have known whether or not what they were looking at was was real. How would that work in the context of the particular case you were talking about here? Um, it, it's a great question, uh, Brian, because you know as as the you know the digital age has progressed, so to have um, what are called uh, deep fakes. So um, basically, it's it's become easier and easier to um, to fake what what people think they're they're watching. And there's any number of examples um, of this from um, you know President Obama um, you know saying you know being portrayed as saying things he never said um, to um, situations that appear to be criminal, but are, are staged um, or, you know, any, any sort of other types of examples in between. And because of this, um, it is difficult sometimes um, and, and increasingly for observers, particularly receivers um, to, to know if what they're seeing is real. However, however, um, one of the things that I point out in the article is that, there is contextual information that some people already bring to their observations that make it more likely that make it uh, for them more likely than not that what they're seeing is genuine. And let me let me explain what I mean by that. Um, Marina Lonina was um, was broadcasting on on Periscope, and she already had you know a bunch of followers, either uh, people who knew her or were actually friends with her. Um, she had moved to Ohio from New York, and um, that's where the reporter was. They had gone to high school together. And so some people who watch either recordings or live streams may know actors who are, being, who are in the, the video. Um, they might know the transmitter. They might know the perpetrator. They might know the victim. Um, they might know where it's happening because they know where the victim or perpetrator or, or transmitter lives. And so for them, and in, you know, including, by the way, the reporter, the only real upstander in this case, she absolutely knew that this was genuine. She knew it was authentic. She knew Marina Lonina's character. She had been following her uh, previously on social media, including Marina Lonina's interaction just the previous night with the same victim. And at that time, which uh, Marina Lenina live streamed, um, she uh, undressed the, um, the victim from the following night um, while the victim was intoxicated and, and presented this minor's nudity um, publicly. Um, and so 
the the reporter, the anonymous reporter, um, and I call her that because she's the one, the only one who anyone's aware of uh, reported to law enforcement, knew not only the identities of the victim and the uh, and the transmitter, but also that the transmitter, Marina Lunina, had a history of mistreating this particular um, uh, uh, victim. Um, and the reporter also knew where this was happening because she was formerly friends with Marina Lonina and knew that she was in Columbus, Ohio. So the point is that um, though it is true um, that, um, that more and more material uh, is capable of being convincingly faked online, there are still circumstances in which observers know enough to know that something is either definitely or likely to be real. So in your article, you also present a model bad Samaritan law to address some of the developments and concerns that you discuss in the paper. And one distinction that I noticed between the Ohio law and the law you propose is that the Ohio law purports to cover all felonies, and your proposed law is much narrower in scope to a, only a few different crimes. Why do you make that distinction? And what, if anything, does it reflect about what you think the legitimate purpose of Bad Samaritan Laws is? As I've been working on this topic now for a couple of years, um, I've been seriously trying to engage with counter arguments to uh, Bad Samaritan Laws and um, in, in responding to them in some way or incorporating them in some reasonable way into uh, my proposals. So one of the, um, you know, the, the sort of primary counter arguments to Bat Samaritan laws um, is that they could be potentially used for anything and that's ridiculous because it's just too um, widespread um, and, and therefore not, not that helpful. Also, because we all are, or at least should be, concerned with um, you know the the carceral state and the, the increasing number of and reach of criminal laws, I also want to reasonably um, limit um, any new laws that that I'm proposing or that that you know would otherwise exist. So, in part, as a compromise um, with opponents of that Samaritan laws, I've arrived at the conclusion that it. Um, is reasonable to limit bad Samaritan laws to um, the most serious of, of violent crimes. And so that's where I've come to the conclusion that I should enumerate what, what these laws are. And so I limit them, uh, limit the, the scope to murder, kidnapping, sexual assault, aggravated assault, or felonious assault. Um, and so my hope then is that we are focusing on the worst of the worst um, crimes uh, and not, um, you know, uh, seeking to hold accountable uh, bystanders to, um, you know, uh, lesser offenses. Another reason why I arrived at this conclusion is, you know, I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, further victimize uh, individuals for, um, you know, just terrible circumstances. So, um, you know, one example might be if there's um, undocumented immigration, you know, there might be people who are aware of it. Um, and I wouldn't want to criminalize necessarily, um, you know, people who are aware of undocumented immigration or, for example, prostitution. 
um, in, in holding that they must, um, you know, report, uh, to, um, to law enforcement. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be sensitive to, um, to other, other types of crimes that we don't want to, um, necessarily exacerbate. One other question that I had was, you know, what about people who may be aware of a crime taking place or having taken place, but who might have fears about reporting to the police, um, maybe because they're concerned about what the police might do when the police show up. I mean, we've seen lots of circumstances where the police themselves, uh, as you note in the article, where the police themselves are the ones committing the crime and getting, you know, videotaped or or live streamed. Are there ways we can incorporate those kinds of bystander concerns about reporting into Bad Samaritan Laws? I'm, I've certainly tried to, and, and again, this is along the lines of trying to acknowledge and um, somehow address counter arguments. Um, and so um, in order to take those sorts of counter arguments um, seriously, um, I've proposed nine exemptions uh, that I've included in the model statute um, to, you know, of people who simply would not be um, to whom the bad Samaritan laws would not apply. And so one would be uh, individuals who reasonably fear that by reporting, they would place themselves or someone else in danger of suffering serious bodily injury uh, or death. Um, another is individuals whose report would concern police brutality if those individuals are not themselves employed by a law enforcement uh, agency. So, And those are just two of, of the nine. What I'm trying to do is um, carve out uh, individuals who, you know, for whom there is a reasonable, um, excuse, uh, or justification for, uh, for not reporting. It's not going to satisfy any, everyone, um, because there are some people, of course, who, um, you know, just want to, uh, limit, um, any forced engagement with law enforcement or might want to, you know, abolish, uh, the police. And so therefore think that, um, you know, anything that's sort of prompting more, uh, civilian interaction with the police just undermines that overall uh, mission. Um, and so, you know, not everybody is going to be um, satisfied with, um, with, with the proposals that I'm making. And I'm, I'm aware of that. I, I, I fully understand that. I suppose that in my final analysis is that at least for these very serious violent crimes that I've listed, um, at the end of the day, I believe the costs are outweighed by the benefits of um, of being required to report uh, to police um, with, again, um, acknowledging the nine exemptions that I've proposed as part of the law. Zach, in, in closing, I wonder if you've seen any interest on the part of states or other jurisdictions in amending existing Bad Samaritan laws or perhaps adopting adopting new ones and sort of what would you say to to jurisdictions that are thinking along those lines well part of the reason that i initially got interested in this topic um in general uh is the the me too movement and the me too movement you know focused uh, mostly on the perpetrators and victims of um of sexual crimes but part of, part of that i think is underexplored is the fact that you know, a lot of people knew what people like 
uh, you know, Larry Nasser and Weinstein and others were doing, and they never said anything. Um, and for that reason, the, the perpetrators' abuses were enabled to continue. In some ways, you know, the silence enabled or, or facilitated or made possible um, these widespread um, sexual crimes. And since uh, the revelations of the Me Too movement, I have seen that there's increasing interest in, um, in doing something about um, the, the widespread bystanderism, which incidentally, you know, not only has, has occurred in the case of uh, Hollywood or women's gymnastics, um, but also in places like uh, the Catholic Church and in the Boy Scouts. Um, there are, you know, multiple institutions where sexual crimes have been rampant. Um, and, and people knew and, and didn't do anything. So, uh, in 2018, uh, Cong Congress enacted, um, a, a very limited, very narrow, uh, new bad Samaritan law. It only applies, um, in athletic contexts and, um, uh, and only to, to young people. It was, um, very obviously a direct response to the Nasser um, widespread uh, sexual assault of um, reportedly more than 300 uh, women and girls. Um, but that was the first instance, at least that I saw, that the Me Too movement was directly um, prodding legislation. In addition to that, um, I've been, um, uh, uh, you know, pleased to see that uh, policymakers have been interested in my uh, research and recommendations. So I worked with a congressperson's office, Jackie Spear, um, on something called the SHAPE Act, um, which is about uh, sexual harassment um, at the in the Foreign Service at the U.S. Department of State. And so she incorporated my recommendations about bystander intervention training in legislation that she and two other congresspeople uh, introduced to try to get at um, uh, awareness of, of sexual assault uh, in the U.S. State Department. And then I've also um, been in conversations with state legislators uh, and one lieutenant governor um, about their interest in following up on my recommendations to introduce new legislation in their states, um, both uh, generally on Bat Samaritan uh, laws, but also specifically with the recognition that um, in the modern era, um, you know, Social media and mobile devices have have enabled, um, you know, remote witnesses to become aware of crimes. And there are so many instances where uh, where people, you know, have become aware and have done nothing that I think there's a growing recognition that it certainly would be helpful if more of these individuals uh, intervened in some way, if only by reporting um, and because how of how horrendous some of these cases are. Um, and the, the life and death nature of some of them, um, you know, there's, uh, there's growing, I think, interest in, in uh, taking up some of these recommendations. Well, Zach, thanks so much for coming back on the show to talk about developments in your research and these fascinating new proposals. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I encourage listeners to check out the article, which is a really fascinating read. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate um, your interest and in, in your listeners' interest as well. Thank you.
Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, come go along with me. Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, come go along with me. Before we get married, some pleasure to see. She got up behind him and away they did go. She got up behind him and away did it go Over the hills to the valley so low They went up a little farther and what did they spy? They went up a little farther and what did they spy? And you the grave and a spade lying by. He stopped her through the heart, her heart blood it did flow. He stopped her through the heart, her heart blood it did flow and into the grave. Pretty Polly did go He threw something over her and turned to go home He threw something over her and turned to go home Leaving nothing behind him but the girl left to mourn Gentlemen and ladies, I'll bid you farewell. Gentlemen and ladies, I'll bid you farewell. For killing pretty Polly will send my soul to hell.